another beautiful song, very worshipful, great reminder of what we have in Jesus Christ. I didn't mean to disparage Baptists too badly. I grew up as a Baptist, and historically, I would identify with a true Baptist perspective. Um, it's been corrupted, unfortunately, as has many things through the ages, infiltrated by Arminian theology and fundamentalism and pietism, and it's been turned into something that it wasn't originally intended to be, which is unfortunate. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, I, I love the 1689 uh, Baptist Confession, and I, I am blessed by great Baptist theologians from the past. And so, uh, as with many things and many denominations, they have suffered through the ages due to poor leadership and um, unbiblical perspectives on many issues. And so, with that said, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew. We're going to continue looking at Matthew chapter 11. Verse 25 and following. Before we uh, get into the passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your deep, deep love for us. Uh, this has been a good reminder for us this morning that we are kept and, and we are treasured by you. We are so grateful for that. As we were reminded this morning in the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, you are in control of all things and all of history is unfolding as you have purposed and we rejoice and take great comfort in knowing that as these things unfold, we are indeed kept by your deep, deep love for us. Help us to understand the passage that we have before us today. Help us to ponder um, the, the wonder of it, um, even the mystery of it, the fact that there are things about you that we cannot even fully comprehend uh, and won't fully comprehend until we are with you in glory. We rejoice that you have given to us your word. Help us to treasure it, help us to understand it, and help us to um, be reminded of the wonder of its content, the work and person of Jesus Christ as we worship today in word and song. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 25, Christ here speaking, uh, as, as noted, it says in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 11, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, the last time that we were together and had time in this passage, we considered what this meant in terms of uh, the significance of the passage, the unpackaging of it. Verse 25 to some is rather complex and confounding, and it seems as if it could be unfair um, to some. But that's certainly not what we take away from it. Christ is communicating a, a profound yet very simple truth, and that is God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And we see that certainly here, that God is in control of salvation, and if you're going to come to him, you come to him with an empty hand and a humble heart. And you don't come to him claiming your own self-righteousness and your own works and your own worthiness. You come to him with one who is in a state of utter dependence upon Jesus Christ. And this is ultimately the point that is being made. The contrast between the um, the, the wise and intelligent and the infants is one of humility, ultimately, and certainly that's what's being teased out here. I wanted to go back for a moment. Someone reminded me the last time we were together in this passage about the significance of the word praise in verse 25, and I think it bears further exegete and emphasis as we see in verse 25 at the beginning Christ says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven. Now, this word praise is interesting. In the Greek, the meaning is to confess, admit, profess, or express agreement with. Uh, confession to God involves concurring with him in his verdict. So I think that's significant, that in the original language, that, that it amplifies the sense in which the Son is in agreement with the Father and is in, is in fact expressing that agreement in a very profound way. He is, he is demonstrating the fact that ultimately the Father is in control and he concurs with the Father in the Father's verdict. That gives us a good example. This passage is ultimately given to us to give us insight into this unique relationship within the Trinity between the Father and the Son, as we will see today, ultimately in verse 27, as we begin to get into that passage. Um, it's interesting, too, that the synonym in the Greek for this word, homologeo, is, it means to speak the same thing, to confess, declare, or admit. Um, an expression that we would have would be to nod in agreement with it. Um, express approval. Now, significantly, the antonym speaks more to what you and I ultimately engage in. It's to refuse, to deny completely, to set oneself against, to reject, which is interesting. The Greek word there carries with it the punch of complete rejection, a willful refusal, an abject angst against the expression. And this is ultimately the case for nat the natural man, is it not? This is why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receives not the things of God. They are foolishness to him. Now, does that passage not speak to that very thing? You read this passage to the world, and it's rejected on its face. You read this passage to the world, and they say, no, that's an offense. In the world's eyes, it's the exact way that it ought to be. Those who are wise and intelligent are exalted. The humble, the infant, are those in utter dependence are rejected out of hand. The very sense that's, that is expressed here is counter to all the world has to offer and would argue for. 
And so these Greek words are important for ourselves to understand, for us to understand in the context of what is being stated here. So when we think about praise, when we say we are praising the Father, we are praising Christ for what he has done, it means, as Christ is doing here, to confess and admit, to express agreement with, and to concur with him in his verdict. Now, this passage is full of God's sovereignty. I mean, just wait to verse 27. The last part of verse 27 is profound and powerful. And I know people struggle with the doctrine of election, but you can't get through this passage at all and get away from it. God's total and complete control over salvation is here expressed. And it's a a subject and a cause of praise, of worship. It gives us a unique picture into the Trinity as well as we will see in verse 27. And what Christ is doing here, he's not setting one group against another, but rather he's making a key distinction, a very vivid contrast between those who think they can save themselves with their meritorious good works and those who realize they must be saved by grace alone. That's ultimately what the source of the praise is. What is causing Christ to rejoice? Well, we know from Luke, Matthew doesn't speak to it, but in Luke chapter 10, we have the 70 returning. They're communicating what it is that has happened. There have been great miracles performed. Demons have been cast out. People have been saved. In response, Christ says, I praise, I exalt the Father because his will has been demonstrated in response or in respect to what they are reporting. Some have been saved. Not all have been saved. They communicated to many people. Many were preached to. Many were told about the gospel. But not all responded. And some did. And and Christ rejoiced over that fact. And we need to understand that. There is no distinction here in terms of accessibility based upon one's intellectual or educational background. A highly educated individual can be a babe, can be humble, and a wholly uneducated person can be in the category of the wise and the learned in terms of clinging to their own self-righteousness. This is a heart condition, and it speaks to the idea of being poor in spirit, poverty. We talked about that last time in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And so Christ here gives us a real sense of of what the focus of our praise ought to be. Now, it's interesting, too, that in verse 25, Christ makes reference to these things. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. What things? What are these things? Well, they're ultimately the kingdom of God, the gospel, and hence salvation by implication. Now, this is really fun. Watch this. Turn to, turn to the Gospel of John, and we're familiar with this, but we're going to see this demonstrated with Nicodemus. Now, look at this. This is quite fascinating. You want to see the application of Matthew eleven twenty five? You go to John 3, and you're going to have this amazing display because you see the very thing to which Christ is speaking. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, 
a ruler of the Jews. So we have what category filled? The wise and intelligent. We have somebody who is in their own eyes the guy who's going to go into the kingdom. That's why he's coming to Jesus. Some say he's coming to Jesus at night because he's afraid of the criticism of others. I think it's more about the fact that he wants to be first in line. He's just seen all the things that have happened in John chapter 2. And he's thinking to himself, this guy has got something going on. I I want a piece of this. I want to be in that. I want to be a part of this. So what does he do? He comes. And and this man came in verse 2 to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. I want a part of the action. And Christ, knowing as he does all things, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he goes on to discuss the whole context of that meaning and, and the significance of it in terms of how one comes into the kingdom. And ultimately, he's speaking to the issue of salvation. And ultimately, the demonstration will be throughout the, the, the colloquy that we have in John 3 that again, it is one who is coming in the context of an emptiness, a, de- a dependence upon someone other than themselves. And we, so, we see that picture very vividly painted for us. So these things concern the kingdom of God, the gospel, and salvation by implication. And so we understand then that the praise that Christ is offering back to the Father would be necessarily understandable. Salvation is provided to all who come in humility and utter dependence on God's grace alone. On God's grace alone. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with what? Look at the description and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The humble, not the proud. He's not dwelling with the Nicodemuses of the world. He correctly and properly rebuked, in a way, Nicodemus. He knew Nicodemus' heart, and he spoke directly to it. And Isaiah reflects on the same idea. It's consistent throughout Scripture. You cannot get away from this. This This is, it just shocks me at times how people get trapped in the idea of a works based righteousness because Scripture is replete. If you sat down and you sat under a tree and you read the Bible from cover to cover, beginning to end, you would stand up at the end of that with a sore back and the complete understanding that you're nothing. You can't get away from this. It's an utter corruption of Scripture. 
to, to communicate that its contents speak to some idea that you're responsible or a contributor to your salvation. You're not. You're not. And so Isaiah makes it perfectly clear, as does Matthew, um, in Matthew chapter 5, this is the same idea, blessed are the poor in spirit, that he communicates. I dwell on a high and holy place. That's significant. Much could be said about that, but we won't take the time. But, but it's interesting that in the context of dwelling in this high and holy place, he has those with him who are with in the ambit of the infant described in Matthew eleven twenty five, that is those who are contrite and lowly of spirit. And what does he do with these who are contrite and lowly of spirit? He revives them. He gives them hope. He gives them peace. He gives them joy. He gives them comfort. He takes away their burden. We see that in the latter part of eleven of chapter eleven. Christ is going to say, this is so beautiful, come to me, come to me, and I I will take away your burden. I will comfort you. I will give you rest. You will dwell with me. My burden is easy. This is such a beautiful passage. And so Isaiah amplifies this. We have this vivid 3D dimension portrayal of this verse, of the the idea communicated in verse 25, demonstrated in John 3. And so that gives us this very colorful perspective of this as we move into this passage. Now, Now consider with me for a moment verse 26. This, this is just magnificent. After he communicates the truth contained within 25, he's reflecting on what it is that's causing him to praise the Father, the fact that the Father is in complete sovereign control of salvation. He now reflects upon it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 26. So if you're still in Isaiah, turn back there as, as, well, as what I was. Matthew eleven twenty six. Yes, Father, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. Okay, well, now again, friends, there are people. You say the word election, you say the word sovereignty, you say the word grace, in the context of sovereign grace, they, the hair on the back of their neck stands up. They get mad. I'm sure there are people mad this morning driving past the church because of the sign that I have up there about free will theology sending you to hell. I thought it fit. It's a quote from Spurgeon, but nonetheless, people get upset. But what we're finding, though, is that our rejoicing, our praise, our worship is rooted and grounded in the very fact that God is sovereignly in control of salvation. That's what causes us to rejoice. That's what causes me to be joyful. This is what causes me to be engaged in this reflective anthem of praise where I am concurring with the verdict. What is the verdict? The verdict is that God saved me and he didn't have to. That God saved me and brought me into a relationship with himself through his son by and according to his sovereign will and purpose. 
and that Jesus Christ in verse 27 only reveals that according to his divine purpose, which is in congruence with the Father's, because he knows the Father, and the Father knows the Son. So good. And so as we look at verse 26, there's like this reflective pause for a moment. If Christ has made a statement, a fact, a profound theological fact, he's going to stand there and revel in it for a moment. He could have just moved on. But no, he, he's continuing to communicate to the audience that he has this, this wonderful moment of reflection. He's allowing them to revel in it, and we get to do the same thing this morning. How wonderful is that? Verse 26 begins with yes. Yes. So that reaches back into the idea of what the word praise means. Yes, I agree. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. So let's think about that for a minute. Christ here lingers for a moment, reveling in the thought that was just expressed. As Christ is doing, so should we. And it's a comforting, assuring thought. People who struggle with assurance are often people who are wrapped around the free will axle always looking to themselves, their pietism, their goodness, their own righteousness, and they're confounded by it because it often is inadequate, it's often failing. So they try harder, they work harder, they do more, trying to shore up their assurance by themselves. But this passage tells us that that's not going to work. So look at this. Yes, Father, for this way. What way? The way he just described You mean the unfair way? Yeah, that way. That's what people will do. So what happens is this. People get to this and they, oh, no, I'm I'm just going to push that aside. That's just so, I look at that, that's just so unfair. That's not very loving. I've heard this argument a million times. Well, that's just not loving. There's There's no grace in that. Well, there's just nothing but grace in it. So it's interesting. So, yeah, so what we're going to find out then is this. I just, I just love this passage. Yes, Father. So again, there's this unique dialogue taking place within the Trinity. It's, it's a mystery for sure. Um, and, and, and one that we ought to revel in and pondering and worship. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. What way? The, the way that God saves, the way that God is in control of salvation, the way that God brings a person to himself through Jesus Christ. What we'll ultimately see then in verse 27 is that this way gets amplified by connecting the way back into Jesus Christ and the purpose of the Trinity in terms of salvation as communicated to us in Ephesians chapter 1 by Paul. See how it all weaves together? So, he communicates this comforting thought. Yes, Father, for this way, your way of salvation was well-pleasing in your sight. And so, this, this is important for us. In the terms of, of understanding and comprehending what it is that's being communicated to us here by Christ, this idea of, of 
the good pleasure of the Lord um, in, in understanding it. And so what we see here is that we understand from verse 25 that these things refer to the kingdom and the gospel and by implication salvation. As a consequence, we would then understand that praise that's noted here would be completely understandable. You have to look away from yourself in order to enter into the kingdom. You have to rely upon Christ in order to enter the kingdom. Christ and Nicodemus, you must be born again. You cannot come in on your own merit, which is what exactly what Nicodemus is doing and what so many people continue to do. Christ is, result, is exalting the Father because he's acknowledging the fact that the Father has adorned that one must look away from themselves and lean on the everlasting arms of God in order to enter the kingdom rather than their own self-sufficiency. What we find then is that in verse 26 that the Lord of heaven and earth has provided a glorious solution to the problem of human sin and misery. And is that not worthy of everlasting praise and adoration? That the sovereign ruler who is self-sufficient and does not need man is nevertheless willing to reveal the way of salvation to him? To the humble and the lowly? To people of every rank and station? As Isaiah communicated in Isaiah 57, 15. That's the same idea. And so when we get into verse 26, we continue to see the amplification of this. There's this idea of, again, this, 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 that which, which was well-pleasing, of good pleasure, perhaps, is the, interp- the language that's in your Bible. So it's comforting, then, for us to understand, then, that it is well-pleasing. Okay, so what... Okay, it's well-pleasing to the Father. What does that mean for me? Well, it ought to be well-pleasing to you too. That's what it means. It was well-pleasing. It was the Father's good pleasure to ordain that salvation occur in this manner. It's a comforting thought that throughout the New Testament that the good pleasure or delight of the Father when positively expressed as it is here, everywhere else has as its object Christ and or the work of salvation in connection with him. So watch this. So so remember, in verse 25, he's praising the Father. You have hidden these things, that is the gospel, and by implication salvation from the proud and the haughty, the meek and the lowly, the humble, are the ones who, are, who come in the context of their regeneration and God working through them. And so in verse 26, we have this reflective moment where Christ again emphasizes the way, the way of salvation being controlled by the Father, and that that way that is in Jesus Christ is well-pleasing to the Father. That's what's happening here. Christ is going to be, as we'll see in verse 27, the object The work of salvation is connected to him. It's always connected to Jesus Christ. And so what Christ is saying here is, and it seems very logical to understand that here, the positive thought of revealing to babes or infants the things pertaining to salvation is uppermost in the mind of Christ when he mentions the Father's good pleasure. 
Herman Bavnik, Bavink said this about this idea. In a certain sense, the fall, sin, and eternal punishment are included in God's decrees and are, and are willed by him. But this is true in a certain sense only and not in the same sense as grace and salvation. These are the objects of his delight. But God does not delight in sin, neither does he take pleasure in punishment. So think about this for a minute. What is well-pleasing to the Father is the salvation of an unregenerate person by and through the work and person of Jesus Christ, the gospel message. While he also decrees other things to occur, which is as we see in verse 25, what is happening, those things do not bring him the same level of delight. In fact, he does not delight in them at all. Look, look, look at this. Turn to Ezekiel. Just so I can prove this to you. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. Well, look at verse 23 first. Ezekiel 18, 23. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Look at verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. All right? Look at Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? So the contrast is important. What we understand then that that in the context of God's sovereignty, while there are certain things that take place, what is ultimately well-pleasing to him, what brings him great joy, what is a good pleasure of the Father, is the fact that people are saved by and through the gospel message. For this way, the way of salvation, God's way of salvation, is well-pleasing to him. That's very important for us to understand, and it ought to be something that is important to us then as well. It ought then to be well-pleasing to us too. We imitate, in the context of what has been communicated to us, the mind of God. We have an insight here into what God is ordering and decreeing. We have an understanding of his compassion. He does not desire that anyone should perish, yet they do. But in the context of his sovereignty, he provides a way for those whom he chooses to be taken out of that and to be placed in the finished work of Jesus Christ to his glory, which is well-pleasing to him. It does not matter what you think. It doesn't matter. Get over yourselves. 
So what we see then is the idea that, that Christ is again going back to that word praise. He's concurring with the verdict. I'm all about verdicts. Sometimes I don't concur with the verdict. But here I must concur with the verdict. There are times when I have greatly rejoiced over the verdict. Other times when I have not. But here I get to always rejoice over the verdict. Always rejoicing over the verdict. The verdict is this, that God has saved you. You have not saved yourself. And you can rest in that forever. And that brings you great hope and great joy. So, we see then, there's other things that we could talk about. We could talk about other things that are well-pleasing to the Father. It's a unique study. Uh, We see from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 9, that God delights in choosing the people for himself. He delights in the fact that by means of the strength imparted by God, believers are working out their own salvation, sanctification in Philippians 2.13. We understand that the Father delights in the Son. We know that from the Gospels. He delights in, in giving his children the kingdom, that people are saved through the preaching of the Gospel. And the decision, as we know in, from Colossians 1.19, that in Christ all the fullness should dwell. These are the things that are well-pleasing to him. And so Christ then revels in that. So let's then look at this powerful passage in verse 27. So you've got the foundation. We understand what this way means. We understand that this way is well-pleasing. Now we get to see this amazing insight. This, this verse is really just, um, it's profound, it's significant, on its face, it may be a little challenging to fully comprehend. That's okay. We're not able to fully comprehend everything. Even the psalmist would reflect on the fact that um, we can't comprehend everything that there is about God. Um, we get into John or Revelation, and John communicating in Revelation 4, it, it, he's, trying, he's using words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but those words even fail to compu- completely communicate the wonder and the magnitude of, of God in the throne room, if you will. But verse 27 is important. So, verse 27 begins with this phrase, all things. The verse reads as follows, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Okay. So, all things. What are the all things? Well, they're the same as these things back in verse 25. The way of salvation. The power of the gospel. The bringing of people into the kingdom. All things. In particular, this, but all things ultimately, as we know from Colossians chapter 1, it is everything. It's, it's, it's all things have been given to the Son. He's in control of everything. And in particular, he's in control of salvation. So, so what we have to keep in mind is this. So, the, the question that you're going to begin to ask yourself is, okay, in, in verse 28, I have an invitation. Why is verse 27 before 28? To prove to you 
that he is indeed adequate to do what he promises in verse 28. You can't get to 28 until you understand 27. So you can't gloss 27 just because on its face it might be a little challenging. 27 is incredibly important. 28 doesn't work without 27. You can't have 28 without 27. You can't have the invitation unless the person is adequate to invite. You can't have the invitation. You can't have the comfort unless the person can give the comfort, can ease the burden. And so verse 27 begins to explain to me why it is that he can extend the invitation that he does in 28. It is incredibly, richly, profound, and deeply theological. God exalting, Christ honoring, praiseworthy in terms of the Trinity's work. And so we then see that, as we note, that all things. So the question is this. Does the one who extends the invitation to accept this salvation have what the sinner needs? Okay, so keep that in mind. These are the questions you've got to begin to ponder. So the way of salvation has been pointed out in verses 25 and 26. It's the way of humble trust in God or in Jesus Christ, if you prefer, in the context of, of, the, of the colloquy. But the, it begs a question, does it not? Does the one who extends the invitation to accept this salvation have what the sinner needs? Does he? Does, does this one even know what the sinner needs? Okay, so that's, that's incredibly important for you as an evangelist, as a Christian in your assurance. So, so this is an assurance-building passage for you. If you struggle with assurance, if you're always doubting your salvation, if you're consumed and concerned about whether or not you're adequate, you must begin to step back from yourself and reflect on what is the object of your faith. Are you faithing in your faithfulness or are you faithing in the one who can do it? It makes all the difference in the world. So look what happens. He extends the invitation to accept the salvation because he knows what the sinner needs. He knows and he has what the sinner needs. So he knows what he needs and he has what he needs. Good stuff. So it goes on. It begins giving me this dynamic picture of Jesus Christ. It says all things. Now, certainly the all things is related back to the these things in verse 25 in terms of the adequacy of Christ, but it also speaks to the fact of his adequacy in totality. The all things makes reference to the idea that he has everything that's necessary for the carrying out of this, of this task, which, have been in, which has been entrusted to him by the Father. So what things? What, what are these things? From Matthew, and we're not going to go through all the passages. I've taken the time for you to go back and look at them. But in the Gospel of Matthew alone, he describes for us that Jesus, the Father's Son, has very clearly the ability to save. Why is this? Well, we're told that Jesus has received authority over Satan. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. 
that he has control over the demons. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 32. That he has control over human ailments and handicaps. Matthew chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, and chapter 9, 1 through 8. That he controls the wind and the waves. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. That he controls body and soul. Matthew chapter 9, 1 through 8. That he controls life and death. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 and 19, 23 through 26. He has complete control over his own disciples and all other people. Matthew chapter 10, he has the power to save them. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, and to judge them. Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. And under and Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, we know that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. God rest my case. <laughs> Verdict for Christ. From other scripture, we know that he, as the mediator, was endowed with the spirit of God. That is, with the spirit of wisdom. In fact, he is the embodiment of capital W wisdom in Proverbs. We'll see that later. We also know that in the heart of this great mediator, Christ, there is peace, there is light, there is life, there is love, and there's joy. All of these spiritual qualities... All of these abilities, all of these facts, all those things I just read to you are facts. So we have in, in, in the legal system, the judge will say to us, uh, before the trial is, I want a, a, a statement of facts and finding of law submitted. It's, it's really actually a very difficult document to prepare in some ways. So you have to list out all the facts. Then you have to take all the law that applies to the facts. So what we have then here is a statement of fact and a finding of law. We understand that, that based upon the facts as presented in the Gospels, that's why we have them, in particular the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those Gospels tell me the facts about Jesus Christ. He tells me why it is that he can invite me in verse 28 to come to him. I have to believe what it says about him. My faith is in Jesus Christ. I believe that he raised the dead. I believe that he calmed the wind and the seas. I believe that he healed the blind and caused the, the lame to walk. I believe that he conquered death and left the tomb. I believe those things. They are facts. If I don't believe them, I'm not a Christian. You cannot ignore those things. This is why Matthew is writing this. He's writing it to a group of people, the Jews in particular, who are doubters, who are questioners, who are saying, we don't believe it. He's saying, these are the facts. You saw them. He was in your midst. Nicodemus came to him. He had seen what he was doing. These are the facts. They are the object of your faith. And so the conclusion of the law is that you need him. And that without him, you will die and perish. Be separated from him forever. Matthew chapter 7 reminds us of that very fact. Lord, Lord, did we not do great things in your name? Oh, the wise and intelligent are a long line. Depart from me. You who have worked iniquity, I don't know you. I don't know you. So... This passage begins to amplify us for us, the work and person of Jesus Christ and the adequacy of it. All things, 
the control of everything, and in particular salvation because of who I am and what I've done, which relates back into the gospel, have been handed over to me by my Father. Boom. Right there. You got it. So we begin to see, can he do it? Does he know what I need? And does he have what I need? Yes. Why? Well, all things have been given to him by the Father. And the Father's in control of everything, right? Who had the scroll in Revelation chapter 5? It was in the hand of the Father. He gave it to his Son. Well, we're going to stop right there because there's so much more to say about this. It's very exciting stuff. And I hope it's an encouragement to you. And I trust that you are here today and that you know Jesus Christ and that your faith is in him alone, that you've come to him humbly with an empty hand in utter dependence upon him alone. If you've come with anything else, if you've come even with your repentance, if you're claiming, I'm, I, I'm, I'm all prepared, I'm ready, there's a, there's a teaching in a in a way that says people have to be prepared for salvation, that you have to begin repenting before you can be saved. That's nonsense. It's faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone. You don't have to do anything. And if you're trying to do something, then you're in the wise and intelligent category. Simple faith. Small faith and a great object is more than sufficient to save. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for communicating to us such profound truths. May we, like Christ, reflect on these things and praise you, concur in the verdict. We rejoice in the fact that this way of salvation was well-pleasing to you and that you saw fit in your mercy and grace to extend this to us. May this indeed be a passage that causes us to be joyful, quiet, and confident in the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for so great a salvation. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you.